gospel reading will be Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal file, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you didn't visit me. And then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then you will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The word of the Lord. So we end the year together tonight. Uh, next week we begin Advent. Uh, this year the theme will be hope, and we're going to look at the hope that Jesus brings to the different characters in the Christmas story. And tonight we end the year with what the church has traditionally called Christ the King Sunday. And at the end of every church calendar year, the church celebrates the Lordship of Christ over all of life. It's a, it's a way of uh, reminding ourselves of the goal of the Christian life, submitting all of life to the Lord. It's also a reminder as we go into Advent and think about Christ the child, that the child ultimately grows up to be a king. So tonight uh, we're following the lectionary reading for Christ the King Sunday. And the lectionary readings are readings that the church has put together over years Uh, to follow along with the church calendar, which follows the life of Christ through history and through the world. And I didn't really know what text was coming uh, when we decided that this year we were going to remember Christ the King Day, because it's called a feast day, and that's one of the very important days on the church calendar. It's one of the reasons we're going to have a little potluck tonight. If you didn't get to sign up for that, grab something, come on upstairs, or come on up and somebody will share with you. It's a time to just eat together and be together. This is a feast day. We decided to do it, looked at the text, and this was the text. And this is not the text that I would choose to preach on the last (laughs) Sunday of the year. It's not 
Uh, my favorite text, it's not a text you find on coffee mugs or cross-stitch or things like that, but it's there. And so let's, let's work with it a little bit tonight. It, it's not so much the, the understanding what it means, it's, it's fairly clear about uh, what it means. Jesus will one day come and sit on his throne as judge of the world, and he will divide all of the human race into two groups of people. And really what he's doing here, I think, is asking a very important question. How do you know you're his? That's a good question to think about at the end of the year, right? How how do I know whether or not my belief is genuine or real. Now, our Lord said something in the Sermon on the Mount back in Matthew 7 that um, makes us wonder sometimes, at least evaluate where we are. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He's saying, You can have good theology. You can understand that I'm Lord. You can ascend to my Lordship. You can pray the right things, say the right things, believe the right things. But if your life does not reflect that, you may not actually have joined the revolution. You may not actually be a follower of Christ. Then he says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons, do many mighty works in your name? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So there's this this, uh, troubling tension that's introduced here, this possibility that saving faith... uh, is more than saying the right things, believing the right things. Now, the rest of the Bible will make it very clear what we believe is very important, right? Truth matters. But merely assenting to the facts of the gospel don't save us. That's a troubling thought, but I think it's a biblical thought, and I think it's one that we have to wrestle with, that merely having good doctrine as important as that is, and it is important, is not enough. He says, but I look for the ones that are doing the will of the Father. What does that look like? Well, he says, I was hungry, and you gave me food. Thirsty, you gave me drink. Stranger, you welcomed me. Naked, you clothed me. Sick, and you visited me. In prison, and you came to me. And to them he says, come and enjoy my blessing. Jesus is saying that what he looks for, the criteria by which he evaluates the people that are truly his, is not merely right doctrine, but a changed life that reflects itself in love. And love, particularly, for the weakest. And you remember, as, uh, as Missy shared with us earlier, Jesus boiled the whole gospel down. Love of God, love of neighbor. 
That's the Christian life. And in the parable of the Good Samaritan, who's the neighbor? Anyone who's in need. How do you know you've joined the revolution? You have compassion for anyone who's in need. Now, immediately as a child of the Reformation, I'm troubled by this text. I worry about this text. I wonder sometimes how it got in the Bible. Because part of me thinks that what Jesus should have said here is Romans 10.9. If Jesus knew his Paul, he would have gotten it right. Paul is answering the question, how do you know you're truly a Christian? And Paul says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You ask Paul the question on Judgment Day, what will be the mark of the truly saved person? Paul says it's everyone who has confessed with their mouth and believed with their heart. Those are the ones that are truly saved. Jesus doesn't say that. I have a professor, a friend over at the university that loves to torment undergraduates in a religious studies class by assigning them Romans 10, 9 to 10, and Matthew 25, 31 to 46, and said, how does the Bible describe how you come to faith? Discuss. <laughs> and at one level, they appear to be in tension, don't they? So what do you do when different parts of the Bible seem to be in tension together? Well, at one level, I think we could say they're not that much in tension when you really think about it. Because Paul is describing how you enter into the family of God. It's through faith. Jesus is describing what happens once you're in. They go together. And by the way, we all know this, but let me just say it again. When the church fathers put together the canon of Scripture and they identified the books that they felt that the Holy Spirit was speaking through and needed to be authoritative for the church, they didn't kind of forget that Jesus said this and Paul said that. They were aware of it. It wasn't a problem for the early church. And one of the reasons it wasn't a problem for the early church, even though I think we can reconcile it, I don't think they cared that much about reconciling things in Scripture. <laughs> I think that came out of a modern, rationalistic desire to compete with the Enlightenment sciences to make everything fit together nice and neat and tidy. And so we started writing systematic theologies. Now, I love systematic theologies. My favorite shelf in my studies got systematic theologies. They're all lined up. Things rhyme. There's alpha. There's numbers. It's beautiful. But I'm not so sure that's what the Holy Spirit had in mind was a systematic theology. I think one of the things that we wanted to do back in the 19th century when everybody was getting all crazy intellectual and dismissing everything in the Bible was to say, you know, we, we're just as smart as they are. It all fits. The Bible's kind of like a math book. You know, with the answers in the back, you can fill in the blank. I, I don't, it's not. The Bible's so much bigger than that. You know, it's kind of like this great choir with all these different voices singing. My son and my son-in-law, I think I mentioned that we had this wonderful experience this summer. We went to Banff in the Canadian Rockies, and we hiked 40 miles in the backcountry for a week. And 
the thing that was so stunning about it is that the Canadian Rockies are very different than the Smokies and there's less foliage and you can see things. You know, I love the Smokies, but after a while you think, well, there's a tree. <laughs> you know, okay, another tree. How about that? But in the Canadian Rockies, you can actually see things, and every time you turn a corner, you're stunned by a vista of another mountain or another stream or another valley, and then the weather changes all the time, and every time you look around, the mountain has an entirely different personality. Every moment of every day, you're confronted with a different glory. That's the Bible. You don't need to systematize it. Just let it speak. Just let it speak. Listen. It's okay if it's messy. It's okay if you can't quite figure out what Paul would have said here. Just let it speak. And so what does it say tonight? How do I know I've truly come into relationship with Jesus Christ? How, how do I know? I mean, that's a good question to ask at the end of the church year. How do I know Jesus has said in the Sermon on the Mount, the magnum opus of his teaching, the centrality of the whole gospel message, he says, by the way, and this is at the end of the sermon, by the way, it's possible for you to have all the right truth and still not be in my kingdom. He says that. And in the last teaching he has before we get to Holy Week, he says, let me tell you what to look for to know whether or not you're truly mine. This is what my people look like. They love particularly the needy. That's it. So what do you do with that? Well, I think Jesus picked six needy groups in his society. I think we can just think about the people with needs in our own community, in our own life. I, I, I think it can be as simple as a needy young family just getting started with children. I think that's a person in need. Remember when Sandy and I were in seminary? didn't have any money and all the stress of everything. And this family, the Keeslings, uh, adopted us. And I, I was riding this, this bike to the seminary 25, 25 miles. And it, it was just a mess. And I, I was supposed to be teaching a class. And I'd get there all sweated out and everything. And this was Los Angeles in August. And, and finally, this dear couple in our church came by. And they said, um, would you like our car? They just gave us a car. And then for our time in seminary, about every month, they'd have us over for dinner. And just, I'd go with Jim and Sandy'd go with Sandy. And, you know, we'd talk about being young and being married. Golly, we were in need. Man, it was nice. Who is that in your life right now? You know, sometimes I think we just make this so complicated. Doesn't have to be that complicated. Who is that vulnerable person in your life right now? What would it look like to move towards them this year and to try to care? 
might be an aging father, might be a troubled son, might be a particular ministry in town that you care about. I don't know who it is. You know who it is. Well, what if you're sitting here and you're thinking, I don't know. I, I don't really have much compassion for people in need. I, sorry, I, it's just not there. It's a real problem. It's a real problem. That's like going into the ER and not having a pulse. And so what do we do? Oh, this is where the gospel is the gospel. I, I think if you're coming to the end of the year and you're realizing, you know, my life's kind of about me, and I just don't really have much compassion for people in need. Not much of my life is about caring for anybody else. I think you do what the Bible calls repentance. And it may be that for you, Christianity has been sort of a sin management game, um, and you really miss the whole thing. And that's okay. That's why you're here tonight. Because the whole thing is being so in love with Jesus and so consumed by Jesus that you care for the weak around you and the needs around you. That's the whole thing. Last thing I want to say, and then we'll go to the table early tonight. Let's be careful how we rank sins. If I had to kind of come up with a ranking of kind of, maybe even my own preaching, but what I talk about with people and what we seem to care about, the worst is a sexual sin, then divorce, and then social media, if you listen to me, because I'm always harping about social media. I mean, those are the, those are the big things, you know. I, I, don't, I don't hear us talk enough about this. I mean, if I'm reading this right, I mean, the Bible, definitely. High view of sexuality, high view of marriage, all of that. Low view of social media, all of that, you know. It's, it's all there. Um, <laughs> not saying that. But I, I don't know if I've ever had someone come into my office and break down and say, I'm just so convicted, I'm consumed with guilt. Why? I'm greedy. I'm a consumer. I don't care that much for other people. I, I, I debated whether I'll share this, but I'll share it and then clean it up. Um, so a guy, many years ago, a young lady comes in my office, she's engaged, just became a Christian, very uh, promiscuous past, very guilt-ridden by it, very ashamed of it, had asked the Lord to forgive her, of course he did, 
and a you know, very godly young man had married her or engaged her and, and said, uh, you know, the only reason I could ever love you is because of Jesus after what you did. And I said, did you hear what he just said? And she hung her head and she said, he's right. I am so vile. How could he ever love me after what I did? And I said, does he care for the poor much? Why? What does that have to do with it? I slept around. I'm a slut, she says. Does, Does he feed the hungry? Give water to the thirsty? Visit the prisoner? Is that part of his spiritual? No, no, he's a very godly man, very involved in his church, and you know, listens to podcasts all the time. I mean, I, oh, it, well, and I, this was not the right thing to say. I said, you should tell him the only reason I can love you for your sin of failing to care for the poor is because of Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Don't try that at home. That's not um, um, particularly a gracious uh, response. But my point is, The things that bother Jesus should bother us. I think sexual sin bothers Jesus. I really do. But for every verse in the Bible on sexual sin, I can find you ten about the poor. I really can. So let's let our hearts be broken for the things that break the Lord's heart. Amen. Amen.